is that we're starting three brand new um, ABFs today. And we'd really encourage you to choose one and, and participate. In the fireside room, I'll be leading a study through um, Getting to the Heart of Parenting, a video series with Paul Tripp, um, which is excellent. In the room across from my office, um, Al Ostrander and Jeff Zimmerman will be doing a study um, Radical Christianity in a Radically Secular World, sort of using David Platt's book, Radical, and addressing some hot um, topics that are relevant for today. And down the hall, um, Dave Lample will be beginning a study through Hebrews. And it will be a long study, so buckle up. Right, Dave? As it should be. The book of Hebrews is anything but simple. So we, we hope that you will uh, participate and get plugged into one of those ABFs. Please open your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy. <clears throat> and let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, we, uh, we count it our great joy and honor and privilege to read your word. We know that for thousands of years, the majority of your people did not have their own copies of scripture. And Lord, we, this side of the printing press, we do cause us not to presume upon that gift but to cherish it. We have your word, which is living and active, which is able to pierce to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It examines us, exposes us, gives life and changes us. So Lord, now as we turn to your word, we just pray that you would have your way with us, that your spirit would give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we... We'll be beginning a series through 1 Timothy. Um, as I've planned out the sermon schedule, this should take us through January, God willing. And um, from there, I, I hope if there's time to go back into the Psalms and perhaps even on to Titus and 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are usually treated as a chunk, often going by the title, the Pastoral Epistles. Um, letters that Paul is writing to individuals, Timothy and Titus, to help them govern, lead, oversee, and shepherd the church. Um, this morning, we're really just going to look at the first two verses. And even there, we're just going to sort of overview the whole book. So this morning will be a little unusual in that we'll be trying to sort of give a flavor for the whole book of First Timothy. Whet your appetite for what's to come. And I want to encourage you as we'll be in Timothy for a few months, to try to read through the epistle as a whole. There's a great value in reading scripture verse by verse and going slow and looking at each tree. There's also a great value in, in reading an entire book of the Bible in one sitting and seeing the whole forest. Um, I've been trying to read First Timothy every day for the last few months, and it takes about 12 minutes. 12, I'd say maybe 12 to 15 minutes to read all six chapters of First Timothy. And when you look at it from that perspective, it shouldn't be that big of a deal to try to maybe read it once or twice in the next week. I think you'd be blessed. I'd encourage you to do that. And as you read and reread books of the Bible, you grow in your familiarity with them and in, in just what topics are covered. And so I highly recommend that practice. So let's just read then the first two verses of First Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, 
mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, before we can dive into even these verses, we've got to sort of set the context. Um, if you are familiar with the book of Acts, which the high school students will be beginning to study through here in just a few weeks, right, Greg? The book of Acts ends with Paul in jail. He planted the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And then he goes to jail. Now church history tells us that Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment around 62 to 64 AD. In fact, Clement of Rome in his epistle, which is an extra-biblical letter, but still helpful for gathering information, reports that Paul actually did achieve his goal listed in Romans. He made it all the way to Spain. And before his second imprisonment, because Paul will be killed by the Romans, beheaded in Rome, he uh, went back to strengthen the churches that he had planted. And so he goes back to Ephesus. He's got Timothy with him. And then Paul is called away to Macedonia. And the letter is written from Paul to Timothy in Ephesus, helping Timothy equip him, encourage him for the work that he has to do. So the first point to, to highlight is that Paul, as an apostle, he was part of the foundation of the church. And what I mean by foundation is that in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Paul there says the church has a cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and then the foundation this cornerstone extends that the church is built upon is the apostles and prophets. And the reason for that is it's the apostles who wrote the majority of the New Testament and the prophets who wrote the majority of the Old Testament. And the foundation of the church is, of course, Scripture. But Paul is one of these apostles. And the reason why I'm highlighting this is that means then that he is first in authority among the other apostles. He and the other apostles have a unique authoritative position in the church. Paul is going to command a lot of things in this book. There is an emphasis in 1 Timothy on authority. There's a lot of charging and a lot of commanding and a lot of silencing and a lot of entrusting going on. And Paul is in a unique position, unlike myself or any other church leader, to, to do that. He has this type of authority that does not exist anymore in the church apart from the word of God. Follow with me. If you just follow along in 1 Timothy here, we'll take a look at some of this. Chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you, Paul wants him to charge certain persons not to teach. One eighteen, this charge I entrust to you. Turn to chapter 4, verse 11. He wants Timothy to command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. Chapter 5, verse 21. We get one of these grand authoritative charges in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality now that is a lot of authority or just a little further chapter 6 verse 2 he wants Timothy to teach and urge these things 
And then again, in, in chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, another one of these grand charges, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to charge the rich in 617 and closing out the book in 620. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. This is an authoritative letter. What Paul talks about is of great importance. He's pulling out his apostolic authority card and he's playing it repeatedly. And so we should expect that what Paul's communicating to Timothy is of prime importance and important for us. Paul is, is a spiritual authority that we don't have today in the church. Let's be clear with that. If, any, if you meet any person who commands and talks the way Paul does, run. Run. There are, if you turn on TBN, you'll find him. Run. But Paul is in this position. And then extending that authority by virtue of the letter to Timothy. Now Paul had planted the church at Ephesus. And we're not going to go there, but but in Acts 19, Paul shows up and he um, encounters some disciples of John the Baptist and he fills them in on the rest of the gospel and they get baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit and ultimately a riot ensues as the um, idol makers led by Demetrius um, try to shut them down and Paul ends up staying there for over three years. And, and the point I want to draw is this, that this is a well-established church. Some critics charge the book of 1 Timothy as not being written by Paul, citing the lack of his gospel foundation. If you, if you read other epistles of Paul, he spends a great deal of time laying out the gospel. Clearly eight chapters worth in Romans and Galatians and Corinthians. It's, it's really not here. The gospel's here, but that massive foundation is not. But the answer for that is quickly explained that Paul had laid that foundation repeatedly in person. There was no need to relay that foundation. This is a mature body. T turn into Acts chapter 20, which before Paul goes to get imprisoned is his last chance to meet with the church. And he'll emphasize this fact. You get a feel for this church that Timothy is at, that it is a mature, established congregation. They've got elders, they've got qualified teachers. We'll just um, pick it up in Acts chapter 20, verse uh, 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, what happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both the Jews and Greeks, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. The Apostle Paul taught publicly in, in corporate church gatherings like today, and he taught house by house, family by family, not holding back any good content. This is a well-taught church. Go down a little further to verse 27. 
I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Which is to say, he taught the entire Bible. There were no off-limits topics or parts. He taught them the entire counsel of God. And then he warns them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So for three years the Apostle Paul labored day in and day out teaching publicly, teaching in homes laying that gospel foundation. And there's now a mature body of elders at Ephesus that he can send for. And yet Paul warns them about the very thing that 1 Timothy will address, the danger of false teaching. Next week as we dive into chapter 1, that's the first topic Paul is going to address. He warned about it in Acts 20, and by the time he writes 1 Timothy, it has already begun. It has already begun. But that's the context. In that sense, Ephesus is, is much like our church. Our church has a solid foundation, years of faithful pulpit ministry, years of faithful ministering. And so I think we have a lot to learn from the troubles facing Ephesus, the dangers facing Ephesus, might in some sense be the dangers we face, the issues that are on our, should be on our radar. And so as we study through the book, um, that sort of explains to some degree why 1 Timothy's content differs so greatly from a lot of what else Paul writes. He knows this is a solid body with solid leadership. He knows that they have a gospel foundation. And so he spends his chips, if you will, on the places that he thinks are of greatest importance in their context. So that's who wrote the letter. Paul, he's writing from Macedonia after leaving Timothy in Ephesus. And he writes to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, you don't need to turn, but in, in one, two, that, that title, true child, is, is a specific Greek word used for a, a true-born, natural-born child. What Paul is, is saying is that Timothy, he's confident, is a true believer, a true convert. And moreover, it means that Timothy is likely Paul's own convert. Even though his mother Eunice and his grandmother had taught him scripture, this repeated reference, it's in chapter 1, verse 2, 118, my true-born child, my child, most think that Timothy really came to faith under the ministry of Paul. He was saved under Paul's ministry. And so you can imagine the intimate friendship and relationship between Paul and Timothy. This man who led Timothy to the Lord, most likely. Who taught him. Writing to his beloved child in the faith. And we know from Acts 16, verses 1 and 2, that Timothy was a faithful friend and with a reputation for godliness. Timothy was Paul's faithful friend with a reputation for godliness. And in Acts 16, 1-2, we, we read, um, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by all the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So Timothy is a godly young man. Um, he 
He has good reputation, a good testimony, and he becomes Paul's missionary companion, Paul taking with him on his missionary journeys. And Paul so much trusted him that when he gets called away to Macedonia, he leaves Timothy there in his stead. Now, the next point's important. Timothy is not a pastor, at least not in the sense that we think of it. I know that these are often called the pastoral epistles, but he is not a pastor. Not in the sense that we think of it. Um, one of the commentators I read said this way, Timothy was not a pastor of the local church in the modern sense of the term. He did not hold a permanent position in the church. The Ephesian church already had its own organization of elders long before Timothy was stationed there. Timothy was stationed as Paul's personal representative. Working with all the churches in the region, he was temporarily placed there to do the work that Paul himself would do were he there himself. Which is to say, he is Paul's personal representative at Ephesus and to the churches of Asia Minor. Paul's going to tell Timothy to do things that I, I don't necessarily think any individual person in the church today has the authority to do. In, in Titus, he tells Titus, just appoint elders. Yet there's nobody in the church that I'm aware of who Scripture gives the authority to just sort of walk around, okay, you're an elder, and you're an elder, and you're an elder. That, that's not how we do things here, and, and for good reason. But an apostle could do that, and somebody directly tasked by an apostle could do that. In that sense, then, 1 Timothy becomes Timothy's warrant, his, his proof that he has the right to do what he's doing. The letter itself gave Timothy a written authorization to do the tasks Paul entrusted him, as well as spelling out his responsibilities clearly and offering him much-needed encouragement. So as Timothy begins to do the things that Paul wants him to do, and if some of the leaders of the church or some of the people in the church say, now hold on here, what are you doing? Timothy can whip out this letter and say, Paul told me to do what I'm doing. And that hopefully would settle all dispute. So even though the letters are very pastoral in focus, um, Timothy's not a pastor. He may be functioning to some degree like a pastor, but he's really just Paul's arm as a missionary church planter. The church has elders, has pastors. And so we're going to learn a lot about church oversight and church life. But we've got to understand that, that Timothy is not our model for pastorship. He might be a model for church planning. Um, but he's Paul's representative. And so as this letter authorizes Timothy, turn to chapter 3, to what I think is the key passage of the book. I think it's always helpful when studying a book of the Bible if we can find sort of a thesis statement, a purpose for writing. It helps us to focus the rest of the book through that paradigm so we can understand why it was written. The Gospel of John has a wonderful um, thesis statement at the end. These things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so you read that in, in the end of John, and now you know the purpose of the book. And as you interpret the rest of the book, you, you funnel it towards that end. Well, Timothy gives us the same sort of key. Verse 14 and 15. Key passage of the book. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
So what Paul is saying is, I want to come here personally. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you in case I delay. So you can start doing the very work that I would do. So the purpose of the letter is to get Timothy started on the very things Paul himself wants to do. And I love the way he phrases this. That you ought to know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. So the blanks here, Paul wrote to instruct Timothy and consequently us how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. That word conduct just means to live, to operate, to exist. And and I love the analogy of the church as God's household, as God's family. You know, the church building is not God's house. This, This is not the house of the Lord, unless you simply mean it's God's house, like those are God's cars and those are God's trees and that's God's dirt. I mean, it's God's house in that sense. But the people of the church are the house of God. We are, in 1 Corinthians 3, God's temple. And there's, there's a number of analogies to use for the church. We are a kingdom of holy priests, a chosen possession, a holy temple. But here, we are God's household. We're God's family. I mean, isn't that just encouraging? The church is the family of God. We, as the church, are God's household. And so it's a helpful way to think of this epistle and and sort of the title of the message and the overarching theme of the whole book is living in the family of God. That's the point of this letter. How should we as Christians live in God's family? Church is a family of families. And the letter is written so that we would know how to live. How should we conduct ourselves? You know, Paul's assuming that with the leadership in place... The gospel is being proclaimed and taught. And so after the church is solid on the gospel, the next question, holding fast to the gospel, is how do we live the gospel? How do we relate to each other? How do we conduct ourselves in God's family as gospel people? And so this is going to be laid out in five major themes in the book that we're just going to briefly take a look at. The first is conducting ourselves in God's household towards truth and error towards truth and error. Just as Paul warned in Acts 20, false teachers would rise up, so they have already begun to rise. And after the opening reading in chapter 1, just read with me in verses 3 to 7. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So there's a danger in the body Now, this isn't as bad as the false teachers who are coming later in the book. This is just the danger of individual Christians, of Jesus' people wandering astray into worthless, pointless discussions and debates, genealogies, discussions of the law that that don't promote godliness, but promote disunity, conflict. And, And Paul's concerned about that. We should be concerned about that our relationship to focusing on what Scripture says. And there's always new books being written that what if and perhaps and maybe. 
And, and there's a danger of being led astray into speculation and not going deep into the things of Scripture. Paul tells them in, 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 in Acts 20, I taught you the whole counsel of God. But there's always going to be a temptation in every generation to go beyond what's written, speculate, guess, and sort of major in these minors over here in the what if and the maybe and the who knows. And Paul's very concerned that Timothy put a stop to that because it doesn't promote the health of the body. And that's the danger of, of error in the body itself, but turn to chapter 4, and we're going to see the, the danger of these wolves, these false teachers who are going to expose themselves and, and leave the church. Chapter 4, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so here's the full-on defection, the, the heresy, the danger of these false teachers who will periodically expose themselves, falling away, going after doctrines of demons. This is a much greater error than what is being addressed in chapter 1. And again, this is the danger in our day. The church is filled, littered, with people periodically coming out with new books, new messages. Not, not our church, I hope, but the church of Jesus Christ in, in the world. And, and periodically sort of say, oh, there they go. There goes another one. And they'll sort of come out and oust themselves. Um, and, that, and that happens. And we've got to be aware of that. We've got to guard against that. We've got to identify it when we see it. In fact, doctrine and truth is of such an emphasis in 1 Timothy, we actually see that the formations of early doctrinal statements and confessions within the book itself. Um, our church has a, has a statement of faith, and there's biblical precedent for that. Um, turn, turn back to chapter 1. And there's a phrase that shows up three times in 1 Timothy and twice in the rest of the pastoral epistles in verse 15 for the first time. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And then he goes on to declare some concise, well-stated truth. In this case, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 1. And in the Greek, in this one, it rhymes. In fact, I think the net translation puts it in in, in rhyming meter in English. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. And I think the Net Bible says, if anyone, an overseer, desires to be a noble task, desireth he. And th there's this evidence that the early church was taking doctrinal truth and putting it in easy-to-remember formulas. They were beginning to form doctrinal statements. They were beginning to, to start to become a confessional church. And what, but what being a confessional church means is having a common confession. And so when you, when you say something well, when something is well said, then others can say a hearty amen to it. And what Paul's saying is, hey, I'm aware of some of your confessions. I'm aware of some of your statements of faith, and they're good. They're sound. Hold on to them. Even a little further in chapter 3, there's the evidence of an early Christian hymn. Verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. 
And then here it is. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed upon in the world, and taken up in glory. And so the church, from day one, is beginning to formulate truth, hold on to truth, prize truth, remember truth, guard truth, confess and joyfully declare truth. And we're seeing this earliest church doctrinal statements beginning to form, confessions of faith beginning to form. And, and these are people who love truth. Paul is concerned with truth. Secondly, we see there's a concern but our conduct in God's household towards holiness. Individual holiness. Chapter 1, 18 and 19. Just after dealing with this false teaching, Paul writes, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. He wants Timothy to engage in war, to make war, but it's the war for holiness, the war for a clean conscience. In chapter 4, verse 7, he urges Timothy to have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And when we get the analogy, we see how much training goes into competitive sports. And Paul says, there's some value to that. But my goodness, there's value to godliness. Train yourself for godliness. And if we just put a fraction of the energy into training ourselves for godliness, that we do into preparing ourselves for other things, our professions, our hobbies, our, we, we'd be a holy people. We'd be a holy people. Third, we learn, need to learn how to conduct ourselves towards wealth. Towards wealth and prosperity. Almost all of chapter 6 is devoted to this topic. We'll just look at one passage in it. Chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so there's a great emphasis in this book on the danger that wealth and prosperity can have in leading us away. In fact, as for those of you who participate in the uh, radical Christianity ABF, um, that book by Platt is really addressing that danger of the American dream eclipsing the Christian uh, manifesto, the Christian life. We sort of adopt this American dream Christianity that's comfortable and easy and wealthy and full of leisure and no hardships and no sacrifices. And, and Paul's concerned in his day and, and there are voices in our day calling us to wake up from that, calling us to beware of that. Fourthly, there's a concern of how we conduct ourselves in the household of God towards each other. Towards each other. And that's, that's another one of the great emphases in this book. It's just the ordering of relationships, whether it's chapter 2 where the men are praying, lifting up holy hands, the women are adorning themselves in, in modest apparel. Or turn to chapter 5 where Paul and 
through Paul, God is concerned about our relationships to each other. Chapter 5, verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity, honor widows. And he goes on. And, and so Paul is concerned about how the young treat the old, how the men treat the women, the women treat the men. He's concerned about the, the body relationships. There's a lot of attention given to that. And fifthly, he's concerned towards leadership in the church and our relationship towards leaders. All of chapter 3 is devoted to the qualifications and function of elders and deacons. In fact, Timothy and Titus are the only two places in Scripture where those qualifications are listed. They're clearly delineated what an elder must be, what a deacon must be, what their function is. And after laying that out clearly, in chapter 5, turn me to verse 17, he gives instruction about relating to them. And on the one hand, we're to honor our leaders, and on the other hand, we're to hold them to holiness. That, that's what we're going to find out when we get there, probably in December, is on the one hand, honor your leaders, those who are laboring and working and teaching and serving, and yet hold them to holiness. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So on the one hand, honor the elders who are working hard. Those who persist in sin, publicly rebuke. So you honor them, and you hold them to holiness. And I just want you to stop and think about these five themes, because this, this is what's on Paul's radar for a healthy church, a gospel-founded church. And then the question is, is that on our radar? Are these the things we're worried about? And I just want to encourage you in the coming weeks and months to sort of evaluate how concerned am I with personal holiness, with the dangers of wealth and ease drawing me away from devotion to Christ? How concerned am I about pure relationships in the body? And how concerned am I about relating to my leaders in the church? Because God's concerned about it, and Paul's concerned about it, and we ought to be too. And we're going to take time studying, working through this in detail, and we'll get to it, but just to get this on your radar now, to be thinking and praying and open to these types of things. In our few minutes of closing, I just want to make one more point. The church at Ephesus makes one more appearance in Scripture. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. It's a sad appearance. Paul's so zealously warning them about error and false teaching, and they get that. They get that, but they, they throw the baby out in the bathwater. They overcompensate. And as the risen Lord addresses and rebukes the church at Ephesus, this is what he has to say about them. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so it would seem that Paul's warning here, and then again in 2 Timothy, they heard. As Jesus says, they are zealous for doctrine. They are zealous for holiness. They don't tolerate sin in their midst. They test and examine those who claim to be apostles. They find them out. They hate the false doctrine of the Nicolaitans, whatever that is. And yet somewhere along the way, they lost their initial love. And so there's a danger, we see, in elevating love over truth. And make sure you put in the blanks here, love in quotation marks, and truth in quotation marks, because they really are not at odds with each other. It's, it's our fallenness that makes us want to think it's one or the other. But there's a danger in elevating love over truth. We can end up like the church at Corinth that was patting itself on the back for being so tolerant of the man having an affair with his stepmother. There are a lot of churches today that pride themselves in being tolerant and affirming and open. I, I don't think that's the danger that we're facing, but we see from Ephesus that you can so far go the other way that you, you lose love, and then there becomes a danger of elevating truth over love, elevating doctrine over love. And, and, that, and that's where the church at Ephesus ends up. Man, they are doctrinally sound. They, they toe the line. They lost their first love. And, and that can be the danger for us, to be dead right. You know, doctrinally right, but dead. Which is why I love, and this is sort of a setup for next week's message. We turn back to 1 Timothy Paul understands this. And in the midst of the opening paragraph where he is charging Timothy to, to silence these teachers, to stop them devoting themselves to silly myths, he makes this bold and amazing statement in, in chapter 1, verse 5. Actually, let's pick it up in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And then he makes this amazing statement. The aim of our charge, the charge that he just gave Timothy, is love. Stop the false teachers for love's sake. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul sees doctrinal purity and love fitting together perfectly. In fact, the very reason Paul is concerned about the doctrinal purity is love. And so we may be tempted to think it's one or the other. You can either be a loving Christian or you can be a, a doctrinally truthful Christian 
And, and Paul sees them working together in harmony. And that's, that's the balancing act we want to get. If you try to act, well, what's more important, truth or love? You might as well ask, what wing of the plane's more important? What blade of the scissors is more important? Truth without love, well, the demons believe and tremble. The demons have got their hands on some truth. Love without truth, Paul says of the Israelites, I testify in Romans 10.1. I testify about them. They have a zeal towards God, but not in accordance to knowledge. They've got passionate worship services, and they're in dead error, and they're going to hell because they don't know Jesus. And you need to get love and truth together. And so as we study this book, we need to find out the relationship between doctrine and truth and love and learn how Paul puts them together, how God would have us put them together so we can live out the truth in love. Next week's message is titled Love and Doctrine. And we're, we're to look at this more fully. So in closing, I just want to encourage you to try to find time in the next week or so to, to read through First Timothy, to read it in a sitting. And to get on your radar these, these topics, our relationship to truth in the household of God in error, our relationship to holiness, relationship to wealth, the danger it has of pulling us away, and our relationship towards each other and the many different types of relationships that we have, and our relationship towards our leaders. I know it's God's goal that he would build and purify his church, and I look forward to what he will reveal to us in his word as we study it. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just um, rejoice to be called your household. This is your family. We are your family. You are our Father. And so, Lord, now as we move into a time of fellowship, let us act like a family, speaking the truth and love to each other, encouraging each other, um, delighting in each other, and the work of grace that you've done in our hearts. Lord God, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. God bless.